You may find yourself overwhelmed by the latest news on plastic pollution, and I don't blame you. Like there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050? But that's not what this podcast is about. We're going to talk about who carries the burden and real solutions to combat this growing crisis. For the last five years, I've had the immense pleasure of working with revolutionary voices around the globe, from boots on the ground activists to artists and innovators, and even key legislators working within the power of the courts. We're getting into the personal stories of my friends, my mentors, my colleagues, and folks I'm endlessly inspired by. And we're gonna do this on a show called People Over Plastic, because that's what we're trying to do shape the dialogue with people of color and indigenous voices that are most impacted by this very controversial material. We're gonna unpack the issue with culture and politics and help make sense of how to get involved, even for busy mamas like me. I'm your host, Shilpi Chotre, and this is People Over Plastic. Speaking of friends and people that I'm endlessly inspired by, one just pulled up in my driveway. Welcome to my driveway. Yeah. Hey! Yay. Nice to see you. How was your trip? It was good. So, Von Wong, your surreal photography and fantasy-like art installations are known to be bold, provocative, and unforgettable, especially in social impact circles where you use your artwork to drive awareness and positive change. You've worked on projects ranging from fast fashion, child hunger, and in recent years, lucky for us, uh, laser-focused on plastic pollution. Before we get to your professional career and many successes. I want to hear more about your personal journey. So there are two parts to that story, right? There's the artist story, which is actually different than the activist story. The artist story started off equally randomly. I actually have a background in hard rock mining engineering. So that was what I studied four years at the university. Hard so rock ex- mining. Extraction. Yeah. Gold, silver, copper, not data mining. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It wasn't because I had any aspirations to be a miner. They just had the best sales pitch for engineering when I went to choose which university program to go to. It was like, you get to travel, you get get small classrooms, you get paid work terms. And I was like, oh, this sounds great. Let's do it. And sometime around 2008, I picked up a camera for the first time. A girl had broken up with me while I was working in a mine in Winnemucca, Nevada, which is really close to Burning Man. And I just started taking pictures everywhere I went until one day I decided to quit my job in 2012. I wanted to travel. And I think one of the cool things about photography is that it enabled me to work from anywhere. So I gained a lot of geographical independence from that point forward. Well, it's also interesting because you mentioned the mining piece when they were selling it to you. You wanted that adventure. Like that was part of the draw. And you got to do that with being an artist, of course. Exactly. Photography was a means to an end, I suppose. It was a way to hang out with new people. It was an excuse to visit cool places. It was an excuse to collaborate with cool people. But after sort of figuring out how I could make a living doing it, I'd done a couple of global campaigns. I felt very unfulfilled. I think that I had basically reached this point where I was like, oh, cool, I'm creating stuff. It's getting seen by a lot of people. I have a lot of followers on social media. What's the point? Where do I go from here? And just creating cool things was not compelling enough for me. 
And that's where I started looking for meaning and purpose and started to infuse the work that I was doing with something else. What we've really done here is extend the life of 18,000 cups from approximately six minutes to a little over six weeks by building an immersive experience and art installation that we hope encourages everyone to be just a little bit more plasticophobic. You were working for companies like Nike, Nikon, Dell, um, and now you're only taking work that has significant social or environmental impact. What was there like a light bulb moment or like a switch in your mind that you were like, okay, I'm feeling unfulfilled, but is there something you saw that you witnessed that you wanted to get more involved? Uh, it wasn't an external motivator as much as an internal one. So I just looked back at my career and I thought, what were the projects that brought me the most fulfillment? And I realized that it was always the ones that were in service of someone else, of some greater mission. Um, there was a project in particular that involved a, making a video for a little girl who was dying of a terminal degenerative brain disease. And that video helped raise $2 million. And I was like, you know, that to me feels like the power of art, where the power of art should be utilized. And I wanted to do more of those kinds of projects. I just didn't know what it would look like when combining fantasy and art. Uh, and so I needed to crack that code um, and show people what it would look like before they would take a risk and invest time into exploring and doing things together. Tell me about the importance of art and culture when trying to get attention on heavy issues like plastic pollution. How are you finding it to drive action? I see art and culture as a really great way to engage people that may not be interested in the cause in the first place. And you're looking at this beautiful thing and you want to know, what are you looking at? Why was it created? What's the story behind it? And you can kind of like sneak people in. And I think it's just a far more open invitation to ignite a, a conversation. And, and I think the ability for the arts to ignite a sense of curiosity in people is extremely powerful. It's, it's completely different when you just try to slap someone with a fact versus saying, hey, look at this really gorgeous thing and, and, and the person wants to know more. Was there a moment um, when you were assessing all of the things you cared about that you wanted to focus on plastic? I stumbled on plastics because of the ocean issue. I think it's just something that's very easy to understand. It's hard to really conceptualize why lots of plastic in a landfill is bad, because isn't that what landfills are for, just to stockpile stuff we don't want? So it's like, it seems like a necessary evil and it's fine, but it's not fine when it starts to go to all these idyllic places that we, we recognize on the side of a tourism poster or something like that, right? Um, and then the fact that it can reach such far away places, places which, which don't even have people, I think just speaks to the extent of the impact that I think is, is what really helps people open their eyes. I noticed your earlier plastics-related project involved attention on a single-use item, and it was really, really brilliant and eye-catching, and it captured the attention of so many people. You know, you're working with single-use straws, single-use bottles. Perhaps your most popular project is Mermaids Hate Plastic, where you depicted this beautiful sort of ethereal mermaid drowning in 10,000 single-use plastic bottles that you had collected. Over the last few years, I've tried to show how small individual actions add up 
by collecting hundreds of cups, thousands of bottles, and hundreds of thousands of straws. But all of those past projects only focus on the symptoms, not on the root cause. That's plastic production. So I teamed up with the Canadian Embassy in Paris to build a three-story tall, giant faucet, vomiting plastics uncontrollably over the environment to bring to life how important it was for us to all turn off the plastic tap. Can you talk to me about the switch of focus from single-use plastic items, which in a lot of ways we know like the straw has been a gateway to, to this issue, and then turning off the supposed tap that creates all the plastic to begin with? The conclusion that I came to is very similar to the conclusions that other people come to when they embark on this. You discover the issue for the first time. What do you do? You question your own consumption habits. Okay, then you reduce the plastic bottles, release the plastic straw. You start being a little bit more conscious about your takeout. You refuse the bag at the store. And then what? And then you're going to do your groceries and then you start looking around and you're like, wait, I don't even have the option to avoid plastics. And you start wondering, well, no amount of my own restraint against something is going to be able to compete against the infinite amount of marketing dollars telling you that you need more, you need, you need now, you need to buy, 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 buy. So really, you're, you're waging a war on consumption. Von Wong's latest project, Turn Off the Plastic Tap, is brilliant in that it gets at the root cause of the plastic pollution crisis in a visceral way. When he asked me to look at the concept early on, my mind immediately went to the connection between plastic and oil. Why does this matter? For starters, anyone that cares about the climate catastrophe should also wake up to the industry's plastic footprint. In simple terms, Exxon doesn't only exist when you pump gas at the station. It's a major global producer of plastic, and the industry is projected to increase by 40% in the next decade alone. We cannot start fixing this problem unless we start thinking about how this is produced and making sure that people who are producing it actually consider where all of this ends up at the end. My hope with this latest project was really to mark that shift a little bit, which is point the finger at, at, at where it all begins. But just, I think generally speaking, I, I try not to buy anything. So I, I don't impulse buy. I wait until something's been on my mind for multiple days, multiple weeks before making a purchasing decision. I have a minimalist wardrobe, which also helps with keeping the weight of your luggage lower when you travel. I wear the same shirt all the time. I just have the same thing that I wear consistently. Like Johnny Cash. There you go. Yeah, just keep <laughs> it simple. Today's our last photo shoot, the final shot of our giant plastic tap going up inside of this beautiful landfill slash recycling facility. I create few projects, but every time I create them, I try to make them the thing, the highlight, the piece of art that people will remember when they think of the plastics issue. So hopefully every time someone goes to turn on a, a tap or a faucet, they're going to be thinking about this art installation and be reminded of the connection between plastic, their own personal consumption, and the accountability that they, they need to start encouraging in organizations and governments. You're dealing with a heavy issue area, yes, but it's actually the physicality of pulling something off like this is, is a lot. So how do you decompress and keep motivated? I'm particularly inspired and motivated by people who are just taking action, right? Like, so meeting people, hearing about what others are doing, hearing stories of progress, of change, of transformation. I think that's what really you know, gets me inspired and, and gets me excited. Uh, as a creative, I am an inspired person. And so 
that's kind of why this trip to the West Coast in a camper van is really great for me because I can go around and just change my environment, change the people that I'm around and just um, continuously learn something new and, and let that drive a little bit of the inspiration. After speaking with Von Wong about his provocative art, I wanted our listeners to hear firsthand what the lack of industry accountability does to an individual and to the rich cultural fabric of the Black community in particular. 99% of plastic comes from fossil fuels, and a lot of it is produced in an area known as Cancer Alley near New Orleans, Louisiana. My dear colleague Ms. Sharon Levine knows at least 30 people that have died from cancer in the last five years alone, in the place where she calls home. St. James Parish. On August 26th, Hurricane Ida ravaged Miss Sharon's part of the country and left thousands of residents without power in sweltering heat and significant damages to their homes. I was so surprised she was willing and ready to take this interview and speak the truth of what was happening on the ground, despite not knowing when her roof would be repaired or when she could move back into her home. Miss Sharon took this interview with us in her car a few miles down the road where she found a signal. Okay. It's been 10 days since Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana and exactly 16 years ago to the day since Hurricane Katrina ravaged the state. I want to know how you're doing and how are your loved ones? Well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm in my home, but I'm not completely in my home because my home is damaged. I'm living in one room with the air conditioning in that one room with the, with the generator. Helping people to get back in their homes, um, continue going to the communities and see what they need and see what people, if people need help, especially the elderly and the disabled. And after I see how they're doing, in the meantime, I'll be working on mines also to see if I can get some of my things done, some of this, some of this debris out of my yard and get the, get the power back on so we can, so I can start going back to church. Hurricane Ida was just the latest reminder of how extractive corporations put lives in harm's way in Black communities like St. James Parish. I wanted to know what it was like growing up in her hometown, so we took a walk down memory lane together. This is what she said. Growing up here was wonderful. We had clean air, we had clean water, we had productive gardens. We would fish in the Mississippi River, we, we grew our own foods. We didn't have to buy so much foods like we buy today. And a lot of that food is processed food and a lot of chemicals in the foods and stuff. We didn't, we, we didn't have all that back then. You, you could wake up in the morning and just take a deep breath of that, of that clean, fresh air. Can't do that now because the water is polluted with, with, with benzene and different chemicals. Such a different picture of what I see now in the news and the stories we hear from from St. James Parish. I think what's crucial for our listeners to acknowledge is that St. James Parish wasn't born for oil and gas production. It was a thriving, healthy Black community. Uh, the first industry came in in, in 1965. I was in, I was in eighth grade. And my daddy and everybody welcomed this industry to come in here. Do you remember what that industry was, like what corporation? A fertilizer plant, and uh, they kept changing the names. 
and now it's still there and it's polluting us. But at that time, we didn't think about anybody polluting us. Because if, if my dad would have thought it would have been something to harm the community, he wouldn't have welcomed this industry in here. Were they coming in under the guise of providing jobs? Yes. And we see that a lot. And it's like, well, we were we were better off without you in the first place. That's right. We, we, we were. We live a beautiful life and we were healthy. We didn't have cancer and all this type of sicknesses and stuff. I think my illnesses came from industry. Because uh, when, when I was diagnosed with autoimmune hepatitis, I went and looked it up. And I found out that it came from industrial pollutants. And then when I was diagnosed with aluminum in my body, that came from industrial pollutants also. Then I was diagnosed with lead in my body. That came from that also. And how close are you proximity-wise to these polluters? The, the one that the closest one to me is two and a half miles. The smell is awful. It's, it's sometimes it smells like a rotten egg. Sometimes it smells uh-uh. like chlorine. Sometimes it smells like sulfur. Some type of chemicals. And sometimes it just have a smell, you know, you, you can't describe it. We're here to announce that Formosa will be investing here in St. James Parish $9.4 billion. When the governor announced it in the spring of 2018, I was in my classroom teaching. That's when Sharon Levine learned that a $9 billion chemical plant was planned less than two miles from her St. James home. Just something happened inside of me. I was angry. I felt so hopeless that we had to move. She was so bothered, she raised the issue with her local community group. No one wanted to fight it. No one wanted to fight it. They said it, said it was a done deal. A done deal to them, but they didn't know who else Sharon had been talking to. And I was sitting up there praying. I was crying. And I said, dear God, do you want me to sell my land? And to my surprise, a voice said, no. In May 2019, Miss Sharon rallied 100 organizers in a march to save the lives in Cancer Alley over a five-day period. This is what she can remember from that march. Well, we, we, we marched and we chanted. And we say, keep the oil in the ground. And we say, not profit over people. We had, we had a whole lot of little sayings. We had posters. We had so many different things. The people, people made the posters. And we got on the bull's horn and we sung, chatted. It was nice. Ms. Sharon told me the protest didn't lead to any reaction from the 200 petrochemical facilities they were targeting, but the multi-billion dollar construction of Formosa Plastic is currently on pause due to her activism on the ground. If built, this facility would release 13 million tons of greenhouse gases a year in a community already blighted by cancer-causing emissions and racism. What are you doing to celebrate? Well, we, they haven't pulled out yet. We hope and we, because they can't pull, I mean, they can pull out right now if they want to, but the Army Corps of Engineers, we sent them back with an environmental impact statement that they have to go back and re, 
re, re, redo the whole thing all over again. So it's like buying you time, but you do you consider this a victory or at least a milestone? I consider yeah. this a victory because I don't think Huge. I don't think they're going to wait two years. You have all of these illnesses coming up. It's a hard struggle. It's a hard fight. You could uproot and move somewhere else. I think it's important for people to hear from you why you stay. I stay because, first of all, this is my home. I was born and raised over here. And second of all, if I wanted to move, I don't have the funds. And industry is not going to pay for me to rebuild somewhere else. And why should I leave my neighbors? My neighbors would be stuck here and I would be gone. No, I'm not like that. I, I was born and raised around these people and I wouldn't just pack up and leave them here. So no, and I'm not gonna leave anyway because this is my home. Some people left and they're sorry because they say it's no place like St. James. So no, I speak for my community. They don't want to be bought out. They want the industry to leave, not them. I was curious to know if and how Miss Sharon's relationship to plastic may have changed while doing this important work. Knowing the petrochemical plant she's fighting so hard against is drowning the world with plastic. When I found out the chemicals that's used to make plastic, we still getting the chemicals in our bodies from the plastic bottles that we drink our water from. That plastic is made with cancer-causing chemicals. When I found that out, I said, I, I wish we true. could go back to the glass bottles instead of, but it's cheaper to make the plastic and then to go to the glass, I'm sure. They're gonna do the cheapest way, even if it yep. kill people. Once this airs, I would love to know, who do you think needs to hear this episode and this connection to petrochemicals that are keeping people sick? What, like, what's your dream audience? President Biden. And that's our show. There's more information about the work of artivist Von Wong and community organizer Miss Sharon Levine in the show notes. We can't wait to hear your observations about our inaugural episode, 99%. Thanks for listening and follow along on Instagram and Twitter. We're at PeopleXPlastic. See you next time.